0: So we're going to continue through James chapter 3. We just cover verses 1 and 2 today. And the main theme is we need living faith to control what we say. And we're going to explore what that means as we go through. But first, we're going to do what we usually do, and we're going to start with a memory verse. You ready? Test your memories. So James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Ready? Nice and loud. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Awesome. I just pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here, to be again digging into your word lord the word says clearly that we cannot understand this by our own intellect by our own human wisdom it is the spirit who gives us understanding as we read your word so we pray we can worship you in spirit and in truth as we read your word your spirit gives us the understanding so i pray you'll Use me and prepare all our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm not going to go through and revise what we did last week. I'm just going to start by reading the verses and then just basically keep going. It's a continuation from last week. So the first main topic we're going to talk about today is anointed by God and appointed by man. So let's read James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. So, let not many of you become teachers. So we talked last week about the fact that being a teacher, a Bible teacher in the church, is more than just a matter of being gifted or anointed. There is this additional dimension that we need to have the right character. We need to be living a godly life. So a man or a woman, if she is teaching women or children, and I won't go into that today, but the reference there is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Anyone who is... in a role of teaching in the church must be both anointed by God and appointed by men. So that means that people around us, people in the church, will observe your good conduct. They will observe that you have a good reputation both in and out of the church and that you have godly character. So let's have a look at what those or what these characteristics of a godly man or a godly woman are. So I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-13. to It says this, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, that's elder or pastor, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderous, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So it's addressed to deacons and bishops, elders and and those in the teaching position in the church and also those with a helps ministry in the church, the deacons. But do you think that these character traits are only for Those in positions of leadership. No, of course not. So, they are God's will for every believer. They're like the goalposts that we should be aiming for. Now, the guys, we're going through the book called A Measure of a Man, and in that Gene Gets goes through the 20 characteristics of good character. What God is molding us to be as we get into his word and we submit to him ruling our lives. So I'm just going to read through them. not going to spend too much time on them. we just going to read through them. And in his book, he's got the list and a very brief explanation of what it is. And I'd recommend that anyone, male or female, go through this book. So the first one is Above Reproach, and that means a man of good reputation. The second one is the husband of one wife, and that means to be morally pure. The third one is being temperate, and that means to be balanced in words and actions and not be impulsive. The next one is being prudent, which means to be wise and humble. The next one is respectable, which means to be a good role model. The next one is to be hospitable. That means to be unselfish and generous, willing to share. The next one is able to teach, which means that we communicate sensitively and in a non-threatening and non-defensive manner. So able to teach is not the gift of teaching, it's the way of talking to people with a sensitive heart and not threatening them and not being defensive. The next one is, Not addicted to wine, which means to be, of course, not addicted to substances. The next one is not self-willed, that is being not self-centered and controlling. The next one is not quick-tempered, so that means to be void of anger, that becomes sinful. And as we read in James, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's the thing here, isn't it, right? That's the process, we listen, slow to speak, and then slow to anger. The next one is not pugnacious, that means to not be abusive. The next one is to be gentle, that is sensitive, loving and kind. The next one is peaceable, which means non-argumentative and non-divisive. Free from the love of money, that means to be not materialistic. And then manages his own household well, that means to be a good husband and father. The next one, loving what is good. That means we pursue godly activities. The next one is to be just, and that means to be wise, discerning, non prejudiced, and fair. The next one is to be devout, which means wholly devoted to God. And the last one is self-controlled, which means to be disciplined. So these are for Everyone, these I believe will be part of the criteria that Jesus will use when he rewards us. Yet, as we learned last week, who does the change? (laughs) We're changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. It's not us who changes us, it's God who changes us. Philippians 1 6 being confident, this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So it's God who does it. God is the one who's in the business of transforming lives. We can't take credit, but we must be willing to allow him to change us. Starts when we're saved, finishes when we die. Or get raptured. And Paul had this mentality of running the race to win. We want to win too. What are we winning? Well. If we persevere, receive the various crowns and rewards for faithful service when we stand before Christ. And so I'm just going to read a couple of those verses about running the race. So the first one is 1 Corinthians 9:24 to 27 It says, Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets a prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away but we do it for an eternal price. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not their shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. See, it's not just what we say, is it? It's what we do. And God is going to reward us for those things. We want to finish well, yeah? It's not necessarily how we start that matters so much, it's how we finish. And the next one is 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. Again, this is Paul speaking. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his coming. Isn't that a wonderful promise? We're looking forward to it, yeah? And now the prize awaits me. He's been working hard all his life by the power of the Spirit. (laughs) It's an interesting verse. I don't know exactly where it is right now, but Paul says, I have labored more than all them. But it wasn't me who was laboring, it was God. And so it just shows that we have a responsibility to cooperate with the Lord and allow him to work with us. So, in summary, for this section, for a man and woman to be appointed into the church, if they have the gift of teaching, then they need to be both anointed by God, have that gifting, but also appointed by man. Others need to vouch or observe their godly character. Now, can a man be perfect in this life? That's the next question we're going to answer. So James chapter 3 verse 2, it says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So again, can a man or woman be perfect in this life? Is it possible to reach sinless perfection? Well, this verse says no. (laughs) It says in verse 2, For we all stumble in many things. So, that's it. That's the answer. The simple answer there. David Guzik says, The greater accountability of teachers is especially sobering in light of our common weaknesses. After all, we all stumble in many things. The ancient Greek word translated stumble does not imply a fatal fall but something that trips us up and hinders our spiritual progress. Now notice here that James included himself among those who stumble, yet he did not excuse his or our stumbling. We know that we all stumble, but we should all press on to a better walk with the Lord, marked by less stumbling. End of quote. Now, there's other verses in the Bible that say the same thing as this that all men will continue to sin, even if they are saved. So we're just going to read a few of them. Solomon's prayer in First Kings, as he's dedicating the temple. First Kings 8.46 When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. So God has made the way for people to come back to him through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure and free from sin? And the obvious answer there is, no one. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. (laughs) That's Solomon's wisdom there. His observation of the human nature. And the last scripture that we're going to read, concerning how none of us can ever be perfect while in this earthly body. And you know why? we cannot be perfect in this earthly body it's because we have our sin nature still attached to it so these verses in 1 john chapter 1 verses 8 to chapter 2 verse 2 tell us not only that Christians will continue to sin but also that god has made a provision for our sins but before you go oh that's good i can do what i want john says very clearly here that he is not writing this so that we will sin more, but rather that we will all realize the terrible cost of our sin. And therefore we will run from sin. We will avoid sin because we are aware of the additional wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus every sin that we commit. So if we sin willfully, then we are demonstrating a very callous attitude towards Jesus. It's kind of the thinking, yeah, well, so what if I sin more? I can do what I want. It just means more suffering for Jesus on the cross. But the more we really love Jesus, the more we really understand and appreciate what Jesus did on the cross for us, then the more we will run from sin as we realize that every extra sin we commit was extra pain and torment that Jesus had to endure on the cross. So let's read 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through to chapter 2, verse 2. It says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So it agrees with what James is saying. In James chapter 3 verse 2, verse 9, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness or unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father, our defense lawyer, so to speak. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. In other words, the one who never sins, who never did sin, who never will sin. He himself is the sacrifice that atones that is, the propitiation for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So again, just pointing this out, if we really love Jesus, if we really appreciate what Jesus did on the cross for us, then it will cause us to want to run from sin as we realize that every extra sin we commit resulted, past tense, in extra pain and torment that Jesus had to endure on the cross. And the writer to the Hebrews gives us this exaltation in Hebrews twelve one and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So again, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. We want to be not sinless, but we want to sin less. You know, I was listening to some Bible teachers, and they were saying, I've reached sinless perfection. I don't sin anymore. I just had to laugh and stop listening. It was terrible. you know. These guys, as from the verse we just read, they're deluded, they're deceiving themselves, and they're deceiving the people that are listening to them. We're setting ourselves up for failure if we have false expectations. We need to know the reality that we have still a sinful nature attached to us. We are a new creation, absolutely. We have the spirit in us, a new heart with new desires. But alongside that, attached to this body this mortal body we have our sin nature and we're always going to battle between the two and we're going to get into that in a little while so the mark of a true believer is not that we stop sinning completely but we grow in holiness purity and righteousness in other words we sin less now going on to the next part of verse two It says, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect or mature man. So this section I've titled, Becoming Mature and Complete in Our Speech. One way that we mature in our Christian walk is in how we talk. The NLT, the New Living Translation, says it like this, for if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every way. So in other words, The very hardest part of us to control is what? Our tongue is what we say. You know how things just pop out sometimes? (laughs) Where did that come from? Was that really me? Yeah. Jesus talks about our words and that they are the revelation of the inner character of what's going on on the inside. Speaking to the Pharisees, he says, in Matthew 12:34 to 37 You brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. So I'll say that again. You brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And I'll tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. So what's he saying? Well, the way we speak shows the condition of our heart. So let's look at the ways we can use our tongues for evil. So it says we stumble in word in James chapter three verse two, and we stumble in word about ourselves with our boasting, exaggeration, and selective reporting. In other words, we are lying. (laughs) It's all different ways of lying, yeah. So John eight forty four, talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders again. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Remember that Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that if a person is not saved, then they are walking according to the nature, or living according to the nature of Satan, because he is their father. So basically, our sinful nature is modeled after Satan. When Adam fell, guess what? He went from being like God, in the image of God to be corrupted and he became like Satan. So that's why we have this mouth which sometimes speaks good words which really build up people and those words do come from God. And then sometimes when we're not trusting the Lord, when we're walking in our own strength, the words that come out are just like this. They're lying words, they're deceitful words, they're horrible words. Ephesians 4.25 So stop telling lies, let us tell our neighbours the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. Talking to Christians there, yeah? Another way we can stumble in word is when we don't teach what the Bible teaches. So according to the Bible, in the last days, the days we live in now, they will be characterized by false doctrine and a false gospel. So some examples of false doctrine being taught today a very common one is the rejection of the six days of creation. So the rejection of the six literal days of creation. A works-based gospel, and that is the rejection of the gospel of grace. The prosperity gospel, and that is, you know, come to Jesus because you'll make your life better and there's no repentance or change in lifestyle required with that false gospel. The rejection of the deity of Jesus Christ the rejection of the resurrection, the rejection of the Trinity. Then, something that's more mainline church these days is a rejection of a literal interpretation of prophecy. And what they do is they allegorize the prophetic books. And that leads to the rejection of the nation of Israel as God's chosen people. And we call that replacement theology or kingdom now theology. And that leads to the rejection of the pre-tribulation rapture, the tribulation and the millennial reign of Jesus, which are all based on a literal interpretation of the prophetic scriptures. So that's the consequence of allegorizing prophecy. When you don't take it literally, then all those literal events become something that you don't believe in anymore. And a large part of the church don't believe in those things. So 1 Timothy 4, 1-3... Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So, again, in the latter times, it's always been that way, but more and more in these days, the great apostasy. Now, another way we can stumble in word is about others. With our criticism, our gossip, our slander, cruelty, two-facedness, anger, flattery and insincere words which are meant to gain favor with other people. So, James 3, 14 and 15 But if you're bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Again, it shows the source of it, yeah? 1 Timothy 5.13 And besides, talking about the young women who wanted to be counted among their widows, and besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. Now, he probably can all relate to being hurt by something that someone has said, gossip or slander. And the damage we can do with our tongue is, yeah, it's immeasurable. So our practical application here is as Christians, we must be careful not to let our prayer meetings become gossip meetings. You know, we can say things like, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? We really need to pray for him. <laughs> so, you need to be careful. What is our motive in talking about other people? So, using our tongues for good, being filled with the Spirit. That's what we're going to talk about next. We talked about how we can use our tongues in a negative way, now in a positive way. How we can build up each other with our tongues. And there's two important aspects of this. Firstly, we need to be filled with the Spirit, living by the power of the Spirit. And secondly, we need to be in the Word. So first, we look at being filled with the Spirit. So Ephesians five eighteen to 21 And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to the fear of God. Now, filled with the Spirit is contrasted with being drunk with wine. And I've got a quote from Guzik which explains this, so I'm just going to read it out to you. Paul's grammar here clearly says, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time event that we live off the rest of our days. It is a constant filling. Asking to be filled and receiving the filling by faith. Much of the weakness, defeat and lethargy in our spiritual life can be attributed to the fact that we are not constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll just stop the quote there. Why do we need to be constantly filled with the Spirit? Because of sin. We need to keep repenting then we need to be filled again. We'll find out more about that in a minute. The ancient Greek grammar for be filled also indicates two other important things. First, the verb is passive. So this is not a manufactured experience. And what he's saying there is it's not something that we do to ourselves or for ourselves. It's not an emotion we conjure up. It's something that God does to us. The quote continues, second, it is imperative. So this is not an optional experience. So imperative means it's a command. God is commanding us to be filled with the Spirit. And he continues, Paul contrasts the effect of the Holy Spirit with the state of drunkenness. Alcohol is a depressant. It loosens people because it depresses their self-control, their wisdom, their balance and judgment the Holy Spirit has an exactly opposite effect. He is a stimulant. He moves every aspect of our being to better and more perfect performance. Another commentator, Mule. I'm not sure how you say his name, M-O-U-L-A, he says this, It is a thing supernatural. It is a state of man wholly unobtainable by training, by reasoning, by human wish and will. It is nothing less than God in command and control of man's whole life, flowing everywhere into it that he may f- flow fully and freely out of it in effects around. I read that again. It's really good. It is a thing, this feeling of the Holy Spirit, it is a thing supernatural. It is a state of man wholly unobtainable by training, by reasoning, by human wish and will. It is nothing less than. God in command and control of a man's whole life, flowing everywhere into it, that he may flow fully and freely out of it in effects around. So why does Paul command us to be filled with the Spirit? Well, as we're going to soon see, and as I think we already know, the only alternative to being controlled by the Spirit is to be controlled by our sinful nature. Take your pick. (laughs) So what are the effects of being controlled by the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit? Well, what does it say in Ephesians five eighteen and 21? We will be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Secondly, we'll be making melody in our hearts to God. Thirdly, we'll be giving thanks, always. And we will be submitting to each other in the fear of God. Now, none of those things are things we can do on our own strength. And going back to our main theme in the book of Hebrews, living faith producing living works. Here we could say living faith producing living words. Okay, again, none of these things are possible if we're depending or operating on our own strength, which is our sinful nature. You know, you can fake it for a while. I've done it. I've tried. You know. You know what you should be doing. You know what you should be saying. You know the attitude that you should have, but you don't have it. And so you try and trick other people into thinking that you're spiritual (laughs) by, you know, pretending. But you know what happens? It doesn't work, because eventually facade stops. You can't keep it up. People see straight through you. So, Living faith is faith in God together with submission to God, and that is repentance. Which means that God then lives inside of us and we partake of his divine nature. And only then can we be filled with the Spirit or empowered by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to speak God's words as God speaks through us. This is a huge concept. It's not just me speaking, it's God speaking through me. Even in just in natural everyday conversations, okay? Who am I controlled by? Am I controlled by my sinful nature or the spirit? Romans eight, five and six and twelve and thirteen. Says this Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting that's a key word there, so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Not eternal death, but just death to relationships. It just means a hard life. Pain, suffering. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, this is verse 12 and 13 in Romans 8. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. What's that saying? Your sinful nature is still trying to influence you to do the wrong thing. Okay. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. You're going to, not again, not eternal damnation, but you're going to have a hard life. What happens when you live a selfish life? You probably end up getting divorced, you probably end up hurting people, lose your job, all those kind of things. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. So, I'm going to read that quote from Mule again. It is a thing supernatural. It is a state of man wholly unobtainable by training, by reasoning, by human wish and will. It is nothing less than God in command and control of a man's whole life, flowing everywhere into it, that he may flow fully and freely out of it in effects around. Now, there's a really good scripture in Galatians that again explains and expands upon this concept of being either controlled by our sinful nature or by the Spirit of God. So I'm going to read Galatians 5, 15-26. And as we go through, think about how many of these attributes of the sinful nature have to do with our mouth. So, starting in verse 15. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. You see what happens? That's a death that the Bible is talking about in Romans 8. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. It's the power of the tongue, isn't it? Yeah? So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. That's the guiding principle here. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. What is urging you to do, what it loves to do, is pull people down, gossip, slander, exaggerate, make you look better than everybody else. Verse 17, the sinful nature wants to do evil. It's not a nice passage to read really, because it tells us who we are without God. We want to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. So, going back to what we started with, why is it impossible to come to this place of sinless perfection? Because it says right here, these two forces are constantly fighting each other, So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Of course we want to be sinless. We can't because we have our sin nature. We are growing in our ability to more and more rely on the Holy Spirit's leading. That's what becoming mature means. We are spending more time being controlled by the Holy Spirit and less time being controlled by our sinful nature. I'll continue in verse 19 in Galatians 5. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality. That can be words too, the way we talk. Impurity. Lustful pleasures. Idolatry. Sorcery. Hostility. Quarreling. Jealousy. outbursts of anger. Selfish ambition. Dissension. Division. Envy. Drunkenness. Wild parties. And other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, they are continuing to live that sort of life. Verse 22, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. It makes sense, doesn't it? If we're living by the Spirit, if we have the Spirit living in us, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Are we going to submit to that leading? Yeah. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. So there's no way me in my own strength am going to be able to control my own tongue. I'm not going to be able to build people up, counsel people, teach people, unless God is in control. I can try and fool people. I can try and temporarily, you know, pretend to be nice, pretend to be spiritual, but eventually people see straight through it. So we have a new heart and new desires as a Christian, but we also need to be allowing God to do his work in us, to speak through us. You know what happens if you uh a Christian, and yet not submitted to God, you end up like Romans 7. Like Paul in Romans 7, verses 21 and 25, knowing what is right, but not having the power or strength to put it into practice. And that is a very frustrating place to be. And the answer to that is to repent and humble yourself and allow God to live his life in you. Galatians Galatians 2.20 My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I live in this earthly body, this body with the sin nature attached to it. How do I do it? How do I live a Christian life in a sinful body? By trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And for today's message, we can rephrase this or apply this as, it is no longer I who speak, but Christ speaks through me. This is amazing, you know. If the Spirit is controlling me, this is literally true. The words I speak will be living words straight from the heart of God. As a consequence, the words that come from my mouth, God's words, will build others up, be full of wisdom and love, and be willing to submit to others and not fight for my own rights. Get what I want. And of course, the opposite is also true. My words can originate from my sinful nature and be hurtful, deceptive, manipulative, and wrathful. Now, (laughs) this is a question we might all have. I know I have it sometimes. How is it that I can be walking in the Spirit one moment, speaking words that glorify God, but the next minute be tearing someone down? Well, the answer is, living according to the Spirit, being submitted to the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, is a moment-by-moment choice. Every new thought must be brought into submission to God. Every new situation must be given over to the Lord. And every new hurt must be forgiven if we are to continue walking in the Spirit, as Galatians describes it, or as Ephesians describes it, continue to be filled with the Spirit. And that is why things can change so quickly. Now, we're going to get into another big influence into how we speak, and that is the Word of God. So, the effect of the Word of God on how we speak and the effectiveness of our speech, how we use our tongues. So the verse that describes this is Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, sing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, similar to Ephesians, but here it's emphasizing not the Spirit of God, but the Word of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why? Why do we need the Word of God? Well, there's a big connection between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Jesus said in John 14.26, I'm going to read from the Amplified Version. But the Comforter, Counselor, Helper, Intercessor, Advocate, Strengthener, or Standby, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, in my place, to represent me and act on my behalf, he will teach you all things, and he will cause you to recall, or remind you of, bring to your remembrance everything I have told you. Okay, so the disciples, that was literally what he had told them, but for us today, how do we know what Jesus said, and how do we know what he has taught? There's only one source, and that is the, it's the Bible. So if we don't read the Bible much, and we have very little of the Bible in our hearts and our minds, then the Holy Spirit has very little to work with. It says there, I'll read that last bit again, He will teach you all things and He will cause you to recall, remind you of, bring to remembrance everything I have told you. So if everything you've read in the Bible is actually very little, then there won't be much there for the Holy Spirit to bring to remembrance. So we can limit the Holy Spirit in the sense that if we don't have much of the Word in our heart, we haven't read much of it and we don't know what it says, and the Holy Spirit can't bring it to remembrance? How are we supposed to demonstrate wisdom in our speech if the Word of God is not available in our hearts to bring it to remembrance? How am I meant to encourage or exhort someone if I don't know or haven't studied the relevant scriptures for that particular issue? So overall, this is a really awesome thing. Our responsibility is to read the Word of God. That's it. God says, get into it, make it your desire. Just keep reading it, keep meditating on it. And the good thing here is it's the Spirit's responsibility to give us the understanding and to lead us into all truth, John sixteen thirteen. And then it's also the Spirit, as we just read, the Spirit's responsibility to remind us of what we read when we need it. So this is really good. All we need to do is stay in the Word. It's God's job to give us the understanding. It's God's job to bring it back to memory. Because I know my memory is (laughs) terrible. It's really bad. all right. But, and it's true, when I'm talking to people, God will just bring things back. If I need that particular verse or that concept, I might not have thought about it for three months. It might have been three months since I've read it, but guess what? It comes back. That's not me, that's God. And that's how God does it. The last scripture we're going to read is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 to 16, and it shows how and why we need to be open to the leading and teaching of the Holy Spirit, both as we read the Word of God and when we speak to others. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 to 16. This is what the Scriptures mean when they say, "No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him." But it was to us that God revealed these things by His Spirit. For His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And here's a beautiful thing. And we have received... God's spirit, not the world's spirit. So we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given to us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit. Using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truth. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual, that means saved and walking according to the Spirit, can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated or judged by others. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that an amazing statement? But we understand these things. We know the Lord's thoughts. We're able to teach, for we have the mind of Christ. Why? Because the Spirit of God, the Spirit knows who God is and what he's thinking and what his heart is. We have the Holy Spirit in us so we also know what god's heart is what he's thinking of course that's through mirror dimly right now but when we get to heaven it's going to be on a whole different level but we still have some understanding we st- still have this revelation of who god is by the spirit i'm just going to reread a couple of verses here when we tell you these things we do not use words that come from verse 13 they come from human wisdom Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. Okay? Really important. Literally, when we are walking in the power of the Spirit, when we're walking being filled with the Spirit, it's God's words being spoken through us. God's life being lived through us. It's just, for me, it's a phenomenal thought that, we can be so used by God. And it's so powerful. But often, <laughs> I choose to not submit to God, and I'm doing things on my own strength. I'm getting angry, I'm getting frustrated, I'm short. My children are looking at me smiling, yes, Dad, that's true. <laughs> and so is my wife. <laughs> So, in conclusion, it is God's will for all Christians that our character changes to become more like Christ. We will all continue to sin while we are in our mortal body, this physical body, because of the influence of our human nature, our sinful nature. But it is God's will for us to grow in grace and righteousness, so although we won't become sinless in this life, we do sin less. It is God's will that we grow and are changed by the Holy Spirit to become mature and complete and this is especially reflected in how we speak to others. We only have two options. We either are controlled by our sinful nature and so produce the fruit of the sinful nature or we are controlled by the Holy Spirit and so produce the fruit of the Spirit. We need to be in the Word of God if we are to become wise and able to comfort and exhort one another. So, overall, let us remain humble and continue to ask God to fill us with his spirit so our lives are under his control and will bring much glory and praise to him. Now, I just want to say that being filled with the spirit is not some emotional experience. It is an act of submission. It is emptying ourselves of sin, repenting of our sin, and so we become available to be used by God. Going to finish with John fifteen five and Philippians four thirteen. I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, by your own strength and resources, you can do nothing. Philippians 4 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, help us to have these thoughts in our head. Lord, to remember that you desire to live your life through us. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. What a wonderful thing to have the creator of the universe speaking and living and acting through me. This sinful body being used as a tool of righteousness as a vessel of honour. And the sinful nature being put down, being crucified, being done away with. And we say, no, you're not going to control me. I choose to be controlled by the Spirit. I choose to repent of my sin so God can use me for his glory. And the blessings that come from that are just amazing. So use us, Father. We pray that we will submit to you if there's anything in our lives which are any sin and lies which is causing us to not be submitted to you, I pray that we'll deal with that, we'll repent of that, and then be filled with your Spirit once more. Help us to recognize our dependence on you and to realize that we can do nothing without you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.